So we finished our summer in the Psalms, and typically, come fall, we are getting back into our series, Our Harmony of the Gospels. Um, and we're actually going to pause on that uh, for three weeks, and we're going to do a quick series on discipleship. Um, we're going to be answering five different questions that will, all, it will give us all a well-rounded, well-rounded and biblical understanding of discipleship. It will get us all on the same page as to what discipleship is. And it will show us how we can all take part in learning and imitating Christ with one another, in our community, and in our daily life as a follower of Christ. And we're focusing on discipleship because we want to work on this within the culture of our church. And what I mean by the culture of our church is the way things are done here, and the beliefs that serve as the foundation to why we do what we do. We want everything we do here to be viewed and evaluated through this lens of discipleship and disciple-making, and we want everyone to be thinking in this way. It's one thing for the elders here or the church staff to have ideas for what our church should look like, but it's a whole other thing for our congregation to be thinking similarly in this way, because we as leaders can try and implement change all that we want, but if we all as the church body aren't on board, then the culture of our church is not going to change. And now it's easy for a church body like us here gathered together uh, to claim that they are a healthy and thriving church with discipleship running through and influencing every ministry, but in reality, that may not be the case. Sunday mornings may be more about entertainment and pleasing an audience rather than worshiping God and being taught from his word. Many ministries may exist, but is there genuine fruit being produced from them? Small groups may be well attended, but are they becoming a clique or exclusive? And now I'm not claiming that these are examples of our church. I think in a lot of ways our church is modeling this idea of discipleship. Um, but we must pause and evaluate. We must evaluate our own church, our own ministries we are involved in, our worship services, and our own hearts to see where our interests truly lie. Because if we miss the mark on this, we're missing out on what, on what God intends for his church, his followers, this body of Christ to be accomplishing in the world. Like I said, it's easy to claim you have a healthy and thriving church. It's another to see it in action. And in this past year and a half, we've had time, plenty of time, to look back and look over all that we do here at FBC uh, and start thinking through what could be more effective for raising up followers of Christ. But as I mentioned a minute ago, if our culture, wow, if our church culture, tongue twister, um, if our church culture, if the way we do what we do and the beliefs behind them aren't going to change within each of us that make up this congregation, then we're going to stay right where we are without much change happening overall. So it's important for all of us to start thinking through, praying over, and evaluating our own beliefs and practices because it's together that we make up this church body, and it's together that we can be a healthy body of Christ or a malfunctioning one, an unhealthy one. Here are a couple good reminders about who we are as followers of Christ and what we as the church should look like. While Jesus is teaching his disciples during the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, 
You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden, and no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A healthy church and the individual Christians that make up the church should have a culture that glorifies God and proclaims his greatness, especially as a light in this dark world. And this will be the culture if we value discipleship as we ought to. So in this short sermon series, we hope to begin the work of being a church body united in a desire and a conviction to have discipleship at its core, to be learning and imitating Christ together, having ministries that support and encourage this goal, and live lives that reflect and proclaim Christ and his good news of salvation to a world that does not know him. And the key word I said is begin. It will take time for all of us to unite in a common belief and practice for what our church should look like and do week in and week out, which is why we're doing this short sermon series to continually work on creating a culture of discipleship within our church. So like I said, we'll be covering five questions in this series. And today we'll cover the first two questions. We'll cover the third question next Sunday and the last two questions Sunday after that. So let's pray and we'll get to our first question for today. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. You are a God that can be known and desires to reconcile and restore us to be in relationship with you. God, I pray that as we look um, at these ideas of discipleship, what it means to be a disciple, I pray that we can be going to your word first and foremost to see um, what you have to say about these things. And I pray that um, we can be thinking through these things, evaluating our own thoughts and ideas and where our hearts lie in these things. And may you just be drawing us closer and closer to what your plan is for your church and for bringing the good news of your kingdom to this dark world. God, I thank you that we have your word and um, that we can gather here together, Lord, as this body. I pray that as we go through your word this morning, you can be speaking to us, your spirit can be working in us, convicting us, challenging us, encouraging us, um, whatever it may be to help us draw closer and closer to you and to better reflect you to one another and to this world. We pray in your name, amen. So question number one, what is a disciple? Go ahead and turn to Mark 8.34 if you haven't already. Um, so scripture, our Bible, is different and has different purposes than many of the books that we read today. 
we can read dozens of books specifically on the topics of discipleship, disciple-making, and so on. And all the information is succinct and organized in a way for us to easily grasp the definitions and concepts and practices involved. But when we come to the Bible, there isn't a book of discipleship. We have you know, the Gospels, and we have the Epistles, and we have prophecy, and we have all these historical narratives and things. There's not a book titled, you know, Discipleship. Um, within the Bible, there are many books that speak about discipleship, but there isn't a nice and organized book with the purpose of informing a modern-day audience like us to know what to do and follow step-by-step step in terms of discipleship. And so instead, we get to work our way through much of the New Testament to develop the biblical idea of discipleship and what a disciple is. So I've said discipleship and disciple a lot in the past few minutes. Um, so I want to give a brief definition of what those are, um, just in case anyone's lost and needs a little help following along. Um, a simple def definition of disciple that we're going to end up building on, because we're asking the question, what is a disciple? Um, a disciple is someone who is a student of a teacher, like an apprentice. Um, in the New Testament, a disciple can also be referred to as a follower. And uh, discipleship is the process or journey in which this disciple learns both what their teachers teach and how they live their life. Discipleship is the process of becoming like your teacher, both in beliefs and how you live. And Luke 6.40 shows this. Jesus is speaking and says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So you see this idea of when a disciple has been fully trained, when they've been raised up by their teacher, they actually become like their teacher. Um, so now let's see how this plays out in the Gospels. And we're looking at the Gospels because this is where we see the life of Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus teaching about what it means to be his disciple or his follower. And one example that may be familiar to many of you is in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. So let's look there. Mark <clears throat> chapter 8, starting at verse 34. It says, Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, Jesus is speaking, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? In this, we see Jesus has actually just rebuked Peter because Peter was rebuking Jesus for speaking about his death and resurrection, uh, which Peter thought the Messiah would never speak of because for Peter, the Messiah was, you know, coming to rule and reign and free them from Roman captivity and always going to be happy and go lucky, right? So after Jesus finishes rebuking Peter, Jesus teaches his disciples and the crowds that gathered that a disciple of Jesus is one who denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows him. And the idea behind this isn't to suffer um, to be like a more righteous person or some other weird reason, um, but it's whoever is willing to lose their current life because of Jesus and the gospel will actually save it. Just as Jesus gave up his own life so that we may be forgiven 
and brought back in relationship with God for now into eternity. But does Jesus' description in Mark 8 cover all of what it means to be a disciple? In a broad sense, one could probably argue yes, but for a new believer today, much more is needed for them to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Like, what does Jesus mean when he says to deny yourself or to take up your cross or lose your life to save it? To better answer this, I want to look at a couple of the experiences of the first disciples and how they became followers or disciples of Jesus. So let's turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Luke is right after Mark. Luke 5, starting at verse 27, says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is the story of Levi, or Matthew, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of Jesus' 12 disciples being called by Jesus to follow him. And we see that Levi leaves everything behind from his tax-collecting life and gets up and follows Jesus. A little while later, during Levi's celebration at his house, Jesus teaches the Pharisees, a.k.a. the religious leaders of their time, that he has not come for those who consider themselves righteous, but to call sinners, those who are aware of their need for a Savior, to repentance. Jesus illustrates this with his previous statement of, the healthy and the sick. He says in verse 31, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. The sick people are the ones who are seeking a doctor to restore them to health, right? Just as the sinners see their need for a savior, and that's who Jesus has come to call as his disciples. We see this calling as the mark of the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. So turn to Mark chapter 1 with me. Go back to Mark, starting at verse 14. It says, After John was arrested, and this is John the Baptist, um, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat 
with the hired men and followed him. Jesus initiates his ministry by stating the kingdom of God has come near, meaning salvation for God's people is on the scene because of Jesus and what will soon come of his death and resurrection. And immediately following this, Jesus states, repent and believe the good news. Here we see a description of what it means to follow Jesus, a theme that pops up multiple times throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. Repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. We see that come up over and over again. So what does repent mean? I think we have a good idea of what it means to believe. But what does repent mean? Repenting involves both a change in your mind and in your actions. It's a turning around from one thing and seeking another thing. And in the case of following Jesus, it means to turn from your old life of sin and selfishness and to turn towards Jesus and his kingdom. This is where our Mark 8 passage comes into play. A disciple is someone who repents, meaning they are leaving their old sinful life in which they either didn't care about God or wanted nothing to do with him so that they may now have new life in Christ. And this looks like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, meaning we're willing to suffer whatever comes our way because of Jesus and to follow his ways. And we see this both in Levi leaving everything behind to follow Jesus, as well as Simon, Andrew, James, and John leaving their jobs and lives to follow him. So we see a disciple is someone who has faith in Jesus and lives a life of repentance, leaving everything behind to follow him. There are a couple more things that could be added to this definition, though. So to finish out our definition of a disciple, let's go to Matthew 28, which should be like the page before Mark 1, because Matthew 28 ends and then it's Mark 1, um, starting at verse 18. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. It says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here we see Jesus laying out what is involved in making disciples. The first is to baptize them, which is a symbol or an expression of the faith and repentance that comes with following Christ, which we already have in our definition. Side note, though, if you are a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, I'd ask, why not? And I'd encourage you to think through that. Um, And if you'd like to talk about baptism and why we practice it, why is Jesus mentioning it here? Please grab me or one of the elders uh, after service, and we'd be happy to chat with you about that. So, the first thing in making disciples is baptizing them, which we noted is an outward expression of the inner workings of the faith and repentance in following Christ. The next thing is that disciples are taught. They are learners, which goes back to our simple definition in the beginning. Disciples are learning how to follow Jesus. And what they are learning is how to observe or keep everything Jesus commanded, like love God and love others. So here's what a disciple of Jesus is. A sinner who has believed and repented and is learning to follow Jesus by keeping his commands. 
being a disciple is a lifelong journey because we're never done learning how we keep his commands. And here's what I mean by that. When I first defined a disciple, I said it as someone who is not only learning what their teacher teaches, but also how they live. In our case, as disciples of Jesus, we'll never perfect living like Jesus did. We'll mess up and we'll sin. But we'll repent and continue to learn what it means to live by God's grace and to keep his commandments. This is what you might call transformative learning. Being a disciple of Jesus isn't just about being able to teach what he teaches. It means your life completely changes and you begin to live like he did. As Mark 8 said, you're willing to lose your life for Jesus and the gospel so that you will save it. Before going on to the second question, I want to quickly clarify one thing that a disciple is not. A disciple is not a second stage after becoming a Christian. A Christian does not become a disciple at some point, and then when they're ready to get serious and live for Jesus, they're a disciple. A Christian is a disciple. There was no wiggle room for Jesus' followers back then, and the same applies today. There are examples of this throughout the Gospels of people wanting to follow Jesus without truly repenting and leaving their old life behind. They're wanting to hold on to something instead of following him wholeheartedly. And an example of this comes from Luke 9, verses 61 to 62. And this is the least challenging one, I would say. It says, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This may seem harsh to us, but the point that Jesus is making is that following Jesus is an all or nothing kind of deal. You don't get to go your own way and try to bring Jesus along with you. No, being a disciple means Jesus is Lord over your life. You follow him You don't get to drag him around and say where you want to go. So there are no two steps or any sense of multiple steps to being a Christian because a Christian is a disciple. Someone who knows their need for Jesus as their Savior because of their sin, believes in him as their Savior, and lives a life of repentance, learning from him and his commands to become more and more like him and do his will and not their own. This is why it's important for us to be on the same page with these simple things, like what a disciple is. Because if we have differing views of what it means to be a follower of Christ, then we can't even get past the starting gate if we're hoping to create a church culture focused on discipleship, learning how to follow Jesus daily. If we each paused to look at our lives as an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what would the definition of a disciple be? Would it be someone who goes to church on Sunday but doesn't keep his commands? Would it be someone who states they have faith but has never demonstrated repentance and leaving their old life of sin and selfishness behind? Or would it be someone modeling a life of faith and repentance as they do their best to follow Jesus? Think back on the examples and the passages that I shared earlier. Where in your life and in your beliefs Do you line up with the biblical idea of a disciple? 
and where do you differ? And it's important here to remember that God's grace and our repentance is key in the life of a disciple, meaning we're going to fall short and we're not uh, going to be the perfect follower of Jesus. But his grace is sufficient and we all are called to turn away from what is not good and godly and toward what we know is. So as we've answered this first question and you're thinking through your own convictions and life of what it means to be a disciple, I encourage you to carry this on later with a family member or a friend. Get into the word together and wrestle with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how both grace and truth work together in this following of him. All right, time for question number two. Question number two is, why make disciples? Why make disciples? We've made it pretty clear what a disciple is, but now the question is, why make disciples? And here's what I mean by this. Why should we, as this gathering of believers, make disciples? Why should we seek to create a culture of discipleship within our church? Why should we hold off on our Harmony of the Gospel series and spend a few weeks talking about discipleship and making disciples? The easy answer is that we know it's a part of keeping God's commands. That's the easy answer to why we make disciples. Jesus says so. Just as we use Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28 to help define what a disciple is, that passage is actually a command from Jesus to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. So we could just wrap this up right now by simply saying Jesus says so. But I think it's good to take a little bit of time to expand it beyond that to see why God commands it. And because in doing so, we'll better understand God and we'll probably desire to actually participate in all that he is doing. So why does Jesus command his disciples to go and make more disciples? I'm going to go back to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, if you want to flip there with me. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We were once not a people, but now through Christ, we are God's people. We're part of his kingdom. We're his children. We're co-heirs with Christ. Once we had not received mercy, but through Christ we have received mercy. We have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul uses this idea of darkness and light too in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness 
and are now in the kingdom of God. We have been redeemed through Christ's sacrifice. And all this and more to proclaim the praises of the one who called us out. God is calling out into the darkness, rescuing and gathering a people for himself that will praise him from now into eternity. Revelation pictures this reality of God being worshipped in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. God has had a plan to save people from all nations since before the beginning of creation. To bring together a people for himself that will glorify him into eternity. And we are witnesses and beneficiaries of his saving grace. What Jesus has done in his command in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples is invite us to be participants alongside God as he calls people from darkness to light. Because as another author put it, the world we live in is not neutral territory. The world we live in is not neutral territory. It is not a bright, sunny place where nice people just get on with their lives and work and interests, and where Christians are people who happen to have a particular interest in going to church. Our TV screens reassure us that the occasional eruption of darkness into our comfortable lives is only an abnormal and anomalous glitch. Normal transmission will be resumed as soon as possible. For us who live here, life is not all that bad in the modern Western world. And we begin to live as if the darkness that God rescued us from really isn't that dark which goes hand in hand with us having little urgency for making disciples. We lose sight of our friends, family, and the millions of other people who are in darkness without the hope and salvation of God. A man named William Booth described this idea of people in darkness in a short piece of writing titled, A Vision for the Lost. And I'm going to read a good chunk of that to you now. Um, because I think it really hits home of what this means. He says, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily, and through them every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled. While the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings being plunged and floating and shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again. And then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. 
And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued, industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats, and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences and their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me the most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly every one of them seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care that is, any agonizing care about the poor, perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. And even their own children. Ooh, can't tissue. Um, why do we make disciples? because we want to partner with God in rescuing people still lost in darkness. Jesus says in John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. Over and over throughout the Bible, God is rescuing people from the darkness we live in apart from him and bringing them into his kingdom. God is at work saving a people group made up of all nations to glorify him and to continue spreading this good news to the millions still in darkness apart from God. As disciples of Christ, we are commanded to go and join in on this mission. And why wouldn't we? For we too were once in darkness. But now know the joy and hope of God's mercy grace and salvation found in Christ alone. My hope is that we recall the darkness God rescued us from and to view it in light of the joy we now have in Christ and that this may awaken an urgency within all of us to embrace the call to go and make disciples 
of all nations. To not merely attend church on Sundays and go on with our lives the rest of the week, but to live as true disciples of Jesus, to be repentant, lifelong learners of Jesus, keeping his commands and inviting others to know the good news of God, rescuing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of the Son he loves because in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's stand together and pray. Father, I thank you for the great mercy you've shown us in, in rescuing us and drawing us into your kingdom, calling us out from the darkness and saving us, giving us new life and hope in you, God. Father, I pray that we can be evaluating our own hearts, evaluating our own beliefs of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of you, to be a learner of you. I pray that you can be just getting our hearts and our minds in line with what you desire and what your word says. Father, I pray that we do not forget the darkness that you once pulled us from. That we can have the urgency that you have in wanting to rescue and redeem people for yourself to be with you for eternity. God, I pray, just whatever you have on our hearts and minds, that we can be just spending this time reflecting on those things, thinking through them, and that you and your spirit can just be guiding us into what you have in store. For all these things in your name. Amen.